Welcome to the Defense Send Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Eric Fanning, the president and CEO of the Aerospace Industries Association, on the defense implications of the latest debt deal that prevented a first-ever American default, as well as a look ahead to the Paris Air Show, and Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on its mind. But first, as it's Monday, Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses is joining us today. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for uh, a New American Security. He's also part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military, as well as unmanned systems. Sam Thanks so very much for joining us. Glad to be back. Before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Uh, Sam, Ukraine's offensive is uh, now underway, uh, and it's pretty hard to track where we are, as is the case often with counteroffensives, especially one that's as secretive as this. The Russians are saying that Ukraine has suffered thousands of casualties. Kiev is saying that it's making incremental uh, gains. Uh, ultimately, what is it we know about how this counteroffensive is going at this point? Well, the counteroffensive has just begun, so it is important not to jump to any conclusions based on evidence seen on social media. Obviously, there will be losses uh, when uh, one side tries to breach the other side's defenses. Uh, over time, Russian military had the opportunity to dig in, and so Ukrainian um, attacks are going to be obviously met with a lot of resistance. I'm not clear on the number of casualties, but the casualties are supposed to be expected, both in manpower and, of course, systems, vehicles, tanks, etc. So we should we should not jump to conclusion based on what has just started over the weekend. But obviously, both the Russians and the Ukrainians are hard pressed right now as each side tries to score some kind of a win. Uh, in, in, indeed, and the Russians had worked hard uh, to try uh, in, in a sort of a campaign to take Bakhmut, and it looks like the Ukrainians may have moved out of that, out of there, and is, are, are making actually uh, some gains uh, in that area uh, as well. Uh, the destruction of the Nova uh, Karkovka uh, Dam uh, is seen as a big humanitarian disaster, certainly an ecological one, uh, but also could have military implications. From your standpoint, uh, it, it looks like in the United States has said that it will disclose intelligence that shows that the Russians are the ones who actually blew it. And indeed, it's in Russian controlled territory. What what's the military impact of the blown dam? Did it foreclose Ukraine's offensive options from your standpoint? The impact appears to be limited. It is unlikely to slow down the Ukrainians. It is likely to cause some headaches to the Russians because it's going to affect our defenses and maybe wash them away to a certain extent. But it isn't going to be very impactful, at least at this point um, in the war. Uh, Sam, really quickly, discuss for us the uh, new edict by the Kremlin that goes into effect on July 1 uh, that uh, turns uh, or would declare or would get um, all sort of volunteer forces in the region uh, fighting on behalf of Russia to become contractors as opposed to their current status? So basically, um, over the weekend, Russian, uh, Russian Ministry of Defense had held its... Um had its, held its one of its main uh, online uh, conferences uh, that they do on a regular basis with everyone in the field. And uh, basically all voluntary fighters who are fighting for Russia have to sign a contract with the Ministry of Defense. And this of course impacts all the private military corporations and companies, and it applies to Wagner as well. 
And of course, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin was very quick to retort and say that the law really doesn't apply. His people don't have to uh, sign a contract uh, with the MOD because they already cooperate extensively with the MOD and coordinate everything. So this is basically an attempt to bring a lot of these uh, fighters, a lot of these um, uh, organizations under the control of the MOD. So if we view this uh, through the prism of Shoigu, Prigozhin contest, which has been ongoing for a very long time, this is basically uh, uh, advantage Shoigu. Not necessarily a win, but advantage. And of course, the extent to which Prigozhin can actually counter this and resist uh, the law uh, remains to be seen. It's also not clear how the law will be enforced, uh, considering that there's combat happening right now um, in, in Ukraine. So uh, we have to basically think of this as a um, Ministry of Defense trying to bring a lot of the action on the ground under its control. And uh, let me, and, and it's, uh, it's uh, fascinating uh, and indeed a win for Shoigu, uh, given that there are such a multiplicity of volunteer forces uh, that, are, that are down in, in that uh, area. Sam, we're 18 months uh, into this war at this point. Um, and on the Russian side, a lot of these uh, small innovative UAV developments are happening from volunteers who have been expressing frustration that they're not getting better incorporated uh, into the broader uh, system. Talk to us a little bit about that dynamic that we continue to see. Well, on the Russian side, especially uh, the Russian military has its own uh, UAV lineup, its own military technologies, which are built and promoted. A lot of them were built for different types of missions. These are sort of multi-purpose, multi-use uh, multi-mission uh, UAVs with a long range that can uh, basically carry a lot of sensors. Uh, and so they're still needed at the front, but they're more expensive to manufacture and uh, it, takes, uh, a it takes longer to manufacture them. What is needed at the front right now are the solutions for this second. And this is why we have such a huge emergence uh, of uh, quadcopters and FPV type drones especially FPV drones recently, especially in this Ukrainian counteroffensive. These are basically cheap, expendable technologies with each drone could be assembled for less than $1,000 uh, strapped with an RPG and send at the adversary. And these drones are needed by the thousands. And both sides have demonstrated the utility of using these drones on a mass scale. But these are ultimately throwaway expendable technologies. And the Russian military doesn't like to build lots and lots and lots of systems, which cost just $1,000 each and could be lost literally in a matter of minutes. It likes to build more expensive systems that can uh, last a lot longer and, and, and perhaps in their mind have a greater impact. So right now, all FPV drones on the Russian side are supplied by the volunteers. And the volunteers are basically uh, criticizing their uh, government and the, and, and the military in not tapping into this incredible upswell of activity from companies, organizations, individuals who assemble and supply these FPV drones to, to the front in large quantities. So there's a lot of um, basically uh, puzzlement on the, on the part of the volunteers, why the MOD really isn't tapping into this technological potential. And uh, on the Ukrainian side, the role of those uh, sort of volunteer extracurricular forces, if you will, in sort of satisfying uh, Kiev's uh, unmanned system needs. On the Ukrainian side, things are much, much better because the Ukrainian government and the military understood the significance of a private commercial type uh, 
technologies. And right now it's cooperating with the civil society, with the private sector, with defense companies, and with the war fighters to create a network that would be able to sort of quickly analyze the products, test the products, evaluate them, and send them to the front. Some on the Russian side are trying to recreate that. Mitri Rogozin claims on his Telegram channel that he's doing these type of meetings with the war fighters and some defense companies and trying to understand the lessons learned. But overall, Ukraine really has the advantage and being more flexible and a lot more embracing of commercial technologies and also having the advantage of the massive amount of aid that it is receiving from around the world, especially from the West. Sam, always a pleasure having you on. Thanks very much. Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Vago. And a word from our sponsors, Bell sponsors, our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And it is my honor and pleasure to welcome uh, back to the program, Eric Fanning, the president and CEO of the Aerospace Industries Association. That is the focal point of US government and industry representation at the upcoming Paris Air Show. Eric, welcome back to the program. Uh, and I suspect you're pretty busy counting down to uh, the reconvening of one of the world's truly great air shows. Yeah, Vago, thanks. Thanks for having me. I think there's a tremendous amount of excitement around this air show. Paris has really become the big one and having skipped two years ago because of COVID, uh, I think there's just a lot of pent up excitement about this one, a huge U.S. government delegation, more platforms, military platforms in our crowd than we've ever had before. Uh, so I think it's going to be a lot of a lot of fun. Uh, but I'll also be glad when it's over. <laughs> uh, I suspect so. And uh, you have a terrific team that's working it there. And obviously the rocketry competition uh, on the last day, which uh, I know you really uh, look forward to. Um, let me uh, start with uh, the big uh, budgetary picture, right? I mean, the good news is we averted a first ever uh, debt default. Uh, the problem is that we have a two-year uh, debt deal uh, some good news in that is that there is an increase in defense spending, unlike some other government lines, uh, discretionary lines. On the other hand, uh, it's a 1% cap for inflation, which is a net cut given inflation is, is running higher than that. There's a hope that uh, there will be a Ukraine supplemental that can be used to boost DOD spending. Uh, but then some argue that that actually might be unlikely. And unfortunately, the speaker uh, still faces a revolt as we, as we tape this. How does this play out from your perspective? And what are the implications for your membership, especially that inflation cap? Well, first off, we were glad to see an agreement, a bipartisan agreement. Anytime you've got an agreement like that, it involves compromise, some good things, some not so good things. Um, but I think, uh, like everybody else, we were glad to see that uh, a compromise was reached before the default, default took place. It does set up a number of markers that have to be hit. All these budget bills have got to be passed on time. Uh, which is not something Congress has been good at in the past, or else we go into something that looks a little bit like sequestration uh, or a long continuing resolution. And not only is that bad for the top line for DOD, because as you pointed out, it's already not keeping pace with inflation. Um, but there are, are a lot of interesting changes that the Pentagon is trying to put in place right now that, that wouldn't take place under a CR, new starts, uh, as we think about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and a possible contingency with Taiwan. Uh, the department's trying to, to move some things around. That can't happen. New starts can't happen in a continuing resolution. So we, we have a lot of work left to do, 
to make sure that we get uh, the budgets in place and keep some consistency going for, for the Pentagon and for industry. What would you rather see happen and what is it you guys uh, are mobilizing to help happen up on the Hill, right? What's, what's the right outcome from your standpoint, given at a time when we do want to build up our capabilities vis-a-vis -vis China, we are helping an ally and partner. We're trying to bolster the security of our European allies as well. Um, what's, what's the right outcome here? From your standpoint. Well, well, two things. One is a sufficient budget to meet the threats that we see around the world. Um, I think there's bipartisan agreement um, that we're facing more threats now than we have in a long time. But almost as important um, or as important as the top line is just consistency. Getting away, getting the budget passed on time, um, so that uh, the Pentagon can plan and industry can plan uh, appropriately. These CRs make it very hard for this partnership to function in a real, effective, and efficient way. And so, we want to see uh, the budget bill passed on time, have a budget, uh, and we'd like to make sure the top line is sufficient to address the threats we see around the world. Um, and is there a number? Is there a right number there? Is it? you know, 10 billion, 30 billion. Is there a number that folks should bear in mind to try well, to cover? Because there's a lot that fell on the unfunded list, obviously, because the, the, the administration itself, right, cut defense spending just before that request went to Congress. Well, it's not just also what's on the unfunded list. It's 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 dealing realistically with inflation. Um, you know, there, there are a number of things, inflation is one of them, that have an immediate impact, but can have a long-term impact too. It can take a while for the full effects of inflation to play out, especially when you're dealing with multi-years or long-lead contracts or what have you. So we don't advocate for a specific number. Um, we just want, again, a budget that's sufficient for the threats that are there and that addresses inflation. This is, you know, there, there aren't a lot of people in government or in industry uh, who've had to, to wrestle with inflation like we're seeing now. So we're, we're quite a few people learning as we go. Uh, in, uh, indeed. Um, the Ukraine war has changed everything about everything just about, right? The department uh, is pouring a lot of resources, uh, both into systems, but as well as uh, munitions. Uh, the industrial base uh, is now a thing again, where people are uh, talking about industrial capacity. Some of these issues aren't new, and I know that you worked those issues when you were in the department. Um, but getting those con getting some of these on contract have taken a little bit longer than I think folks uh, had hoped. What do we need to be doing that we're not, uh, Eric, in order to build up the industrial base and make that kind of investment that's necessary for us to be able to produce? Uh, I mean, ultimately, we are an arsenal or the arsenal of democracy. W what's the investment uh, that's going to be necessary uh, and the policy stuff and everything else, the long-term focus to make sure we have the capacity we need to do what it is we need to do. Well, first, it's it, you know it, it is this lesson you're right that we continue to learn that capacity is a capability in and of itself. There's no way we could afford as a country um, to uh, build surge capacity into everything in the Department of Defense. It's just unaffordable. And, and surge capacity, the potential to surge, comes at the expense of something else. You know, something's going to be a bill payer for that. And so it was years to get us to this situation where we are, where essentially we were buying enough to replace what we're using in training over many, many, many years. Um, you know, the, the defense industry is different than any other industry in that it has one customer. 
sells to, to companies, countries around the world, but really through the Department of Defense, through that one customer. So that customer, the department, shapes the contours of the defense industrial base. And over years, for completely understandable reasons, um, it told industry that it wanted to be as efficient as possible to keep costs down as much as possible. That meant that we were pulling that surge capacity out of the industrial base over many, many, many years. Then Russia invades Ukraine. We want to move quickly. Uh, and we've had to work together to, to figure that out. Part of that is letting contracts, but the department had to figure out too what it wanted to buy. Uh, the country had to figure out what it wanted to give uh, to Ukraine and all that took time. Uh, and this is on the heels of all the perturbations, the global perturbations we had from COVID uh, with, in, with inflationary pressures uh, at the same time. So I think, you know, again, you can't build surge into everything that you buy, but you can break down, you know, what are the things that we will need in a conflict um, that we will need in great quantity that we will need for duration, because that's got to become a part of the planning thinking is, is duration. We, we tend to plan for short conflicts and that's not usually how it plays out. Right. And then what are the long lead things inside of those um, that maybe it's materials, maybe it's a workforce that you've got to keep, maybe it's factory throughput um, and figure out where we can make some investments that allow us to surge faster than we're able to right now. Let me take you uh, to the question of uh, the GAO. Um, they uh, just put out a study uh, that noted that just about everything is behind schedule and points the finger of blame to an extent on the department uh, by discussing the issue of risk aversion. That's not necessarily new. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I would point out uh, that the department is in part risk averse because members of Congress that now are for acquisition reform beat the department up. So it tries to be more careful and more cautious, just like uh, I, I don't know a program executive officer or a service secretary that wants to see another GAO report uh, beat them up. So now it's interesting that those uh, very or, uh, two organizations are the ones saying go go faster. And indeed, the department is trying to do that. You were trying to do that, whether you were in your uh, job as Army Secretary or the deputy in the Air Force or uh, when, you, when you were in, in the Navy. The equation is changing a little bit. What are the takeaways from this report um, you know, and where are we making progress and where are we not, uh, as the department itself does try to move fundamentally more quickly without taking unnecessary risk? Well, I think, you know, first of all, um, this is, this is a historic pendulum, like many things, uh, bureaucracies, in my experience, uh, are additive. That is new processes or rules or regulations are put in place to prevent the last bad thing from happening. And over a while, after over time, that collective collective aggregate risk mitigation can become the greatest risk itself because it slows you down so much. And I think there are a number of reforms underway um, in this administration, the previous administration, to try and build some more speed into there by, by being careful of not um, doing away, uh, uh, you know, not taking eye off the ball, but still trying to to streamline the process a little bit. The Congressional PPBE Commission, for example. Uh, another a number of things that Bill of Plants doing uh, in DOD and the service account, uh, acquisition executives across the military departments. Uh, and I think Ukraine certainly brought to light the importance of being able to move quickly uh, and, to, and to surge in that demand. So I think there's a lot of good attention on this. I've seen more focused bipartisan interest in these types of reforms as of late than I've seen in my 30 year career. And again, part of it is just recognizing that if you're just adding um, risk mitigation, you really do start to 
build a cumbersome, slow system. Uh, and, and we've got to do something about that because speed is important. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, and 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 indeed, and I thought it was interesting, right from an industrial base uh, perspective, not to go back to the question, the preceding question, where you would you know make the point that unfortunately, right, you make up differences in spending accounts often on on munitions lines, and you're like, okay, well, we'll take a little bit from here and we'll buy more next year, but actually, the more doesn't come back, and eventually, you find that that you're you know because you're you're willing to take risk there. And now yeah. we're sort of understanding, don't take risk there, right? Yeah, munitions is always a bill pair. And, uh, you know, it, this is a simple analogy that I've been using. But, you know, we the defense industrial base is not like your neighborhood hardware store, again, because it has that one customer. And so whatever the department buys or doesn't buy, the industrial base shapes around that. And uh, it's easy it's easy to use munitions as a bill pair. You can't buy half of an aircraft carrier, um, but you can say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take 10 or 20% uh, risk on my inventory on, on a certain munition or what have you with, as you've said, the idea of making up for it next year. And if you don't do that, if you don't make up for it and year after year after year after year, you buy 80% or 70%, again, the industrial base shapes around that number. Um, speaking about industrial base uh, shaping, uh, anytime there is an investment in capability that's uh, rising, uh, there can be allegations of malfeasance. A few weeks ago, 60 Minutes uh, profiled the defense industry. Uh, and one of the voices in that was the former uh, director of the Pentagon's procurement policy, Shea Hassan, uh, who you uh, served with during the Obama administration, who accused the industry of making excessive profits, You know that a component would be a $300 component and is billed to the government for $10,000. Several prominent senators have asked Defense Secretary Austin to investigate industry margins. And the last time we were having stories like this were $600 toilet seats and $1,200 hammers. And we ended up sharply constricting uh, defense spending and indeed put in a whole bunch of processes uh, that you could argue, you know, you, you wanted to solve one problem if it was happening, but then caused another series of bad outcomes. What, what, you know, how do you respond to these kind of allegations? How does the industry respond to it? Where can we do better? What might be a misunderstanding from your standpoint? There aren't many industries that have as much oversight as the defense industry does uh, for good reason. Um, you know, we're, we're uh, uh, there's a lot of taxpayer money that's going towards national security. So Congress is watching, you, the media are watching. Uh, there are all, all number of people and agencies in the Department of Defense that are, are overseeing uh, these contracts. It's a highly regulated industry building very complex um, platforms that we know, we'll see it in Paris next week, the world wants. The world wants what the United States builds. Uh, and there are a number of people watching and monitoring. I, di I did see the piece. I think some of those examples they used are, are pretty old at this point. Um, but that's a part of the of the of the of the oversight that comes with an industry that is uh, is important to the country, um, so linked to uh, important taxpayer treasure and building such complex um, platforms and introducing new technology. Uh, it, it certainly is among the most complex of, of businesses. And sometimes uh, I can say this knowing a lot of people in the industry without trying to criticize Shea or take one side or another, there are comp commercial components that have to be actually, because we went to a commercial off-the-shelf approach, that actually need remarkably more modification to work 
uh, in a defense application that would be the case if we had just actually stuck with a military specification part sometimes, uh, unfortunately. You know, you, you mentioned something else too, Vago, which I think is important for people to know. This, this industry, like others, depends on private investment. Um, and that investment looks for profits. The defense industry's profits are much lower than, than the technology industry, for example. And a lot of investors treat defense stocks almost as a hedge, something between you know, the technology industry and a bond, say, um, so because those, those profits are lower, but there's some consistency to it because you have this customer that you know is going to be buying year after year after year. But those profits are important in order to attract that private investment that the Pentagon leverages. I, one member who says, if the Air Force buys $700 million worth of drones from me, they think they get $700 million worth of drones, which is true, but they also get the next round of investment that this company then can marshal, that it puts to work in CapEx or our research and development that the Pentagon is leveraging for future technology. Uh, indeed. Um, we started this uh, conversation with the Paris Air Show. I want to uh, end it there. Uh, obviously, it is the uh, first time in four years that we're convening all at uh, Le Bourget. Uh, from your standpoint, what are the top priorities uh, during uh, the air show for you because you guys have a largest one of the largest uh, congressional delegations you're meeting with your international uh, counterparts what are the priorities well i think you know for me priority is always um highlighting the importance of partnerships and alliances that that's that's something we have that the russians and the chinese don't have and those alliances and partnerships are as important now as they've ever been and we're going to be in paris of course and there's a land war on europe uh, which is still hard to get to wrap my mind around. And so I think that's going to be a, a prime focus here. And we're going to have the opportunity, the United States, to showcase uh, what it is we build, what we bring to the fight. And is there any one issue that you're pushing harder than anything else? Well, I think for, for the industry as a whole, aerospace and defense, we are still working really hard to get the research and development tax amortization issue fixed. You know, we went from uh, being able to to get a to, to deduct your R&D expenses in the year that they're made to amortizing it over five years. China, in the meantime, is actually doubling down. It's a super deduction for them. You put a dollar in, you get $2 back. That's the type of thing you want the tax code to be um, incentivizing uh, behavior like that. And, and it's not something that just impacts the big companies. We've got very small family-owned companies that are taking a, a huge hit. And with all of the problems we see in the world right now, uh, we really want to be leveraging um, that uh, investment from the private sector. One additional thing that that's I think will be a topic at this air show, especially as we look um, for continued support of Ukraine and 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 what might happen in uh, in a possible Taiwan contingency, is making sure we continue to reform the foreign military sales system. The State Department issued some great new reforms uh, a couple of weeks back. We're waiting for DOD's uh, reforms to be announced, but it's important, especially. Uh, also, in light of AUKUS, uh, that we figure out how to bring these partners and alliances closer and bind them closer by having a, a better, more efficient way of of, uh, of a foreign military sales system. Uh, Eric, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, always a pleasure having you on. Uh, fair winds following seas. Break a leg uh, at the air show and look forward to seeing you and, and working together. Awesome. Thank you, Vago. 
And joining us now, as he does every week, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners, uh, who joins us uh, to take a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, uh, thanks so very much for joining us, and I hope you guys had a terrific weekend. We did, and always a pleasure, Vago. Uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, another great note uh, where you uh, track your base case. Uh, we are in base case territory. We talked about it a little bit on Friday's uh, podcast, as we always do, uh, where Michael Herson of American Defense International joins us for his sort of forecast. Um, and, and you also talk about, right, you say frying pans and fire, where we've occasionally talked about, you know, you're not, you're not in the fire, thank goodness, but you, you are still in the frying pan. So give us your base case assessment on where uh, you think this all yeah, that, uh, the, goes. The frying pan fire mention was really, it was kind of how the defense stocks and I think more broadly defense was was being perceived, at least the US defense companies were, which is, you know, you had this whole debt ceiling risk and that was kind of the uh, the frying pan. And then really, okay, you know, that seemed to be resolved. I mean, at least you had an agreement on FY24 and, you know, maybe there's a supplemental bill that comes out. And as Michael Herson discussed on the Friday show, uh, you know, really the, the events last week had prompted me to, to reassess some of my odds and, and probabilities about how this would play out. And I think you're kind of seeing uh, kind of the shift again in defense sentiment play through. Uh, you know, you don't want to take a single day of of trading, but at least the market verdict is, you know, Northrop Grumman, as I'm looking at my screen right now, is down almost a percent. Uh, uh, Lockheed Martin, you know, also down not as much, but <clears throat> Huntington Ingalls down a bit. So, it's kind of this notion that um, there's more risk coming out of the house that uh, first the statements that no supplemental would be would be uh, contemplated. I think that's kind of a you know a very interesting development, particularly in light of of some of the losses that are being verified that Ukraine is suffering with with U.S. equipment. I, I saw one of the websites that tracks this stuff. Oryx had calculated that imagery shows they've already lost um, 15% of the Bradleys that the U.S. had supplied to Ukraine. So combat losses are expected, obviously, in a conventional war. But um, this this issue is front and center, I think, not just for Ukraine, but kind of the whole U.S. deterrence and European deterrence policy in Taiwan, as we have discussed many times before. Um, but I think, you know, this idea that we, I do think we're going to start the year with a continuing resolution. I just don't think how, I don't see how Washington get all these appropriation bills done by October 1st. Um, the bigger question, I suppose, is after uh, January, uh, December 31st, if, if we don't have these appropriation bills done, we're going to start seeing setting uh, spending reset to 99% of the FY23 level. Um, and that I still think we're going to avoid a full year CR uh, scenario for defense. But I think as Michael talked uh, on Friday about, you know, that could still be an outcome that this hardcore um, cohort of, of uh, Republicans in the House ultimately would like to see. I mean, this is this is a, a means towards that end. Um, having said that, you know, I think maybe at some point these broader national security factors are going to weigh on that. And I'm not ready to throw in the towel and, and say that that's, that's the most logical outcome. But I do think, I do think, you know, 
you have to think about that as a marginally higher risk than was the case, you know, when the Fiscal Responsibility Act was enacted by President Biden. Um, so what's the way forward uh, that you see on this, right? I mean, if Ukrainian losses are, are that high, we heard uh, earlier in the program from Sam Bendet that it's kind of unclear where we stand right now. I mean, that'll become uh, clearer in a little bit. We, we don't fully know what the Russian losses are, although Prigozhin says that there uh, might, might be uh, serious on their side uh, as well. How, how do you think, at least from a U.S. fiscal perspective, this all works out? I think it's going to depend, Vago, on, you know, I think the first thing to see how the House appropriations uh, subcommittees and the, the overall committee mark up the non-defense discretionary requests. Uh, the <clears throat> veterans military construction bill is going to be taken up this week. You know, if you start to see these bills reported out with cuts below <clears throat> the levels that were included in the um, kind of, as, uh, below, if they total a number that's below the non-defense discretionary number that was in the uh, the Fiscal Responsibility Act. I think that's going to be a, a very strong signal. There's going to be a hell of a fight over um, non-defense discretionary spending, and that's going to make it even more probable that these appropriations bills are going to get done. Uh, certainly, you know, as I said, by the end of this fiscal year, but you know that this is a battle that will slip into into 2024. And, and I think, you know, the combination Ukraine supplemental me, it was always really predicated on, you know, the timing of the offensive, how the offensive performed, um, you know, then you can assess what, what the Ukrainian defense needs would be. Um, I've got to believe, you know, <clears throat> there's a close working relationship between uh, the Ukrainian military and, and our department of defense and, you know, NATO and the other uh, defense ministries in Europe. So they'll probably have a pretty good bead, but it wasn't going to be a, here. Here's a, here's an open carte blanche. Just we'll give you whatever you need, uh, or we think you need before you've actually seen how the offensive progresses. And I, I still think, you know, we're in the very early days of this. You don't know, right. um, you know, there, there's not a lot of news coming out of this. Uh, the, the fact that Ukraine has lost uh, Bradley's and leopards and some of the French, uh, uh, armored vehicles that were supplied that that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody but you know if this thing is is dragging on into august um then i think you really have well you have to see how this plays through the august recess in ukraine and then i think maybe we could get more action on a supplemental either in september or maybe in october in the first part of fiscal uh fiscal 2024 but i i i really do think that there'll be a, a much broader recognition. And McCarthy had even signaled this uh, earlier about the need to support Ukraine. So I, I think you'll see that opposition crumble um, under a very concerted assault, uh, you know, by the Senate and by more moderate uh, Republicans in the House, and that you'll get a Ukraine supplemental. Um, but the rest of the, the rest of the DOD budget, you know, we'll just have to see. I, I, I don't, <laughs> things don't look like they're getting easier, uh, in, in Taiwan and, and China, North Korea, you know, so this is still going to be front and center in, in people's minds and, uh, much as, you know, sure you can find money in the department of defense. Absolutely. But you can't do it, you know, when you, you do these abrupt budget cuts, right. um, the system just doesn't work that way. 
Uh, and uh, uh, as Dov uh, Zakheim, who uh, uh, former Pentagon comptroller, uh, wrote uh, in the Hill that that actually a supplemental that kind of accommodates and is more pointed at China might be a way to actually uh, underwrite uh, Ukraine aid. Very quickly, we've got about thirty seconds left. What is it the audience ought to be paying attention to uh, this week? We'll see the the um, the National Defense Authorization Act. The subcommittees in the House Armed Services are going to be releasing bill text. Um, there's a confirmation hearing for the next commandant of the Marine Corps. That those things typically don't generate a lot of news, or they shouldn't generate a lot of news. Uh, but the current commandant is speaking at Heritage on Tuesday. It'll be interesting to see what he says about force design. You know where where the Marines are on this journey and what they're learning from Ukraine. And equally, you know how did how does he see this whole budget drama affecting? Marine Corps modernization, readiness and training. So, um, and there, there are a series of think tank events on um, on Ukraine, on NATO, I'm sorry, on NATO and NATO expansion. And Atlanta Council looks like they're doing a very interesting event on Friday on the war in Ukraine and lessons for Taiwan. Right. Um, let me just ask you 30 more uh, seconds. Paris Air Show is convening. You're not going to be there. Uh, many of our team are going to be there. But what are some of the things you're looking to see out of the Paris Air Show? I think the, the first thing will be, what are the French going to be saying about the SCAF program? You know, their, their kind of competing program for the global combat aircraft program that the UK, Italy, and Japan are pushing forward with. I, I think There'll be a lot more discussion, hopefully, about just kind of the state, the overall state of the European defense industrial base. I'm really not expecting much from a U.S. standpoint, um, you know, brand new defense uh, announcements, you know, although I think this whole question about cooperation on industrial base, specifically on munitions, is going to be important. And then they're going to the perennial, you know, how's the Saab Gripen really doing uh, you know, what, what are some of the other uh, European defense companies talking about? But um, I, again, I'm not expecting, even though Raytheon is doing a pretty big investor meeting the first day of the show, and I think GE is doing one the second day of the show, I think those are going to be more, uh, uh, there'll be some information on them, but I don't think they're going to be big new movers. Byron, thanks very much as always. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you on uh, and uh, keep well and look forward to our next talking. Very good, Bago, and safe travels to Paris. Thanks very much.